Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're going to be focusing on a topic I've been thinking about a lot recently, abundance and scarcity. There are so many different forces in our brains, our bodies, and our culture as a whole at the biggest level that move us toward the experience of scarcity, the feeling that something is missing, that we don't have enough, and moreover, that we never will have enough. The feeling of scarcity is both a problem itself, it feels bad on its own, and it's also the creator and amplifier of so many of the other challenges that we face. Speaking personally about that for a second, I can't tell you how many bad interactions I've had with other people, ones I really wish I could have back, that were made worse by my own underlying feelings of scarcity. It's like gasoline on a fire. So today we're gonna be talking about what a scarcity and an abundance mindset is, what some of the sources of scarcity are, and how we can increasingly move toward the authentic experience of abundance. And alongside that, maybe exploring this topic territory as a whole and offering a couple of caveats along the way. So to help us do that, I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm unbelievably psyched for this topic. Yeah, same. I think it's going to be a great one. It's full of personal value, also involves some kind of far-reaching, even radical critiques of conventional ways of living in modern society. It's a great topic. Yeah, very much the same. I've been looking forward to this one since I started writing the summary for it about a week ago. Yeah. So before we get started, a few quick reminders. Uh, first, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to it. Second, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you'll receive a variety of bonuses if you choose to become a patron of the show. I put together detailed show notes for each episode that explore the topics in sometimes excessive detail and go into the research behind each episode. You can also access ad-free versions of the show and transcripts of everything that we produce. So, okay, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard terms like scarcity mindset or abundance mindset before. But what people mean practically when they use those phrases can be a little difficult to pin down sometimes. So let's start there. How do you think about scarcity and abundance? What are these things? So scarcity means something is missing or it's in short supply. And I think of one of the two key meanings of the word want, that we want for something, we lack something. When we have a sense of scarcity, naturally, biologically, we contract. We contract kind of around what we have already, so we get possessive and want to hold on to it. And we contract to establish a kind of base as physical animals for the action of fleeing, fighting, or freezing that's going to enable us to hold on to what we have and get more of what we need. So there's contraction. And in that contraction, there's often a a kind of ongoing, growing sensitization to um, our environment. We feel alarmed. We feel threatened. We're, we're worried, understandably so. And because of the negativity bias of the brain, with repeated experiences of scarcity, even if we actually have enough, the crux is what we experience 
with recurring experiences of scarcity, we become increasingly sensitized mm. to this feeling of lack yeah. and increasingly focused on drivenness toward wanting. Great. On the other hand, abundance, obviously, there's a sense of enoughness. There's excess. We have a little bit more than what we need in the moment. And when we have that sense of abundance, there's naturally the opposite of contraction, which is kind of an expansion. You know, the gaze lifts up from our self-referential, egocentric, immediate setting or the immediate future. And we start looking more out toward the horizon of time and space. We expand our view. We take more into account, partly because we can afford to do that. We don't feel that in immediate peril. And also because with the sense of abundance naturally comes that more expansive, and we may talk about it, generous attitude, mm. right, from what we have. So then we're more relaxed and we shift into what in psychology is called an approach orientation rather than an avoidance mm. orientation. I mean, there's a place for an avoidance orientation if you're in a truly miserable, threatening situation. But on the other hand, generally speaking, that approach orientation that focuses more on opportunities than threats, more on promoting the good than preventing the bad, that approach orientation is associated with lots and lots of long-term and short-term benefits for both physical and mental health. To kind of summarize what you were saying there, the two words that really stick out to me from all of that is that a more scarcity mindset, a lack mindset, leads to a person being really sensitized to their environment, to the behavior of other people, to what happens to them, broadly speaking. Because when we don't have a lot of something, having a little of it taken away is very, very threatening. On the other hand, for abundance, it's that feeling of relaxation that you named, mm. I think. That feeling that everything's going to be okay. If I lose a little bit here, it's not going to kill me, whatever it might be. We can really just kind of lighten up about some of the things that happen to us. And as you were talking about both of those words, scarcity and abundance, I was kind of noticing something. The words that you were using for abundance were all really positive words, you know, mm. relaxation, expansion, approach orientation. These all sound like really good things. And the opposite was true for scarcity. So broadly speaking, experiences of abundance tend to feel good and experiences of scarcity tend to feel bad. As we've talked about in the podcast on the past, the brain and body is really pleasure seeking, right? Most of the time. So you'd think that we would be inclined toward abundance and it would be really, really easy for everyone to just have an abundance mindset. But we know that that isn't actually true. We have a brain and a culture that's really geared for scarcity. So I'd like to start with the kind of biological psychology side of that. How is a vulnerability towards scarcity baked into us? That's such a deeply interesting question. And Abundance, to be clear, is not about excess. It's not about, to use the term, I think, from the sociologist Thorstein Veblen. This is coming back to me from college, which was a long time ago. <laughs> the term conspicuous consumption, hmm. people who deliberately, yeah. whether it's back in the Roman parties where people would overeat and then vomit and then overeat some more, or wealthy people who would flaunt their, their wealth, conspicuous consumption. Abundance is not about that. Abundance is about the sense that there's more than what I need. I think uh, Thoreau had a line, I make myself rich by making my wants few, including that meaning of the word want, my presumptions mm -hmm. of lacks. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that said, 
Yeah, back in the Serengeti Plains, we couldn't store food. So if you chanced upon some carbohydrate-rich, slightly sweet food source, you would gorge. You would fill up your belly as your personal storage tank because you couldn't, you know, haul around your refrigerator with you back those days. If you had some kind of position, scarcity also applies to social standing. If you had some kind of position in your band or, you know, in early human cities, let's say, you would want to hold on to that position, right? You wouldn't want to risk that you would lose it. Generally speaking, our brain is much more sensitized around loss than it is sensitized to gain. You know, this is the work of Daniel Kahneman, as you know, Forrest, and prospect theory and loss aversion and so forth. So these are just some of the ways. There are a lot of other ones, but the bottom line goes back to the saying I coined that we have a brain that's like, you know, Velcro for bad experiences, Teflon for good ones. We have a brain that's like Velcro for the sense of scarcity, but Teflon for many, many ordinary experiences of abundance that kind of wash on through. And then ooh, we feel like we don't have enough. And so we have to hold on to my precious as a result. Yeah, to return to another uh, Rickism, it's a, the classic paper tiger paranoia mm. situation where yeah. we are built to avoid the imagined threat a hundred times in order to avoid the real threat once. We jump away from the shadow overhead, even though most of the time it's just, you know, some leaf blowing in the wind because every once in a while it actually is a hawk. And that hawk really is there to eat our ancient mammalian ancestors way back when. Something we've been doing recently, me and my partner Elizabeth, that's been really fun, has been watching the show Alone on Netflix. It's a Good for you, crazy Forrest. show. Classic, yeah. Yeah, totally crazy show where they basically take these survivalists, these really, really hardcore people who really know what they're doing, and they drop them into some incredibly unfamiliar environment and unforgiving environment in the middle of nowhere with very, very little. They're allowed to bring like 10 objects or something like that with them that help them survive. And outside of that, they're on their own. And the person who makes it longest wins. And it's really shocking how quickly resources run out for these people. Even though they, they can be in a situation where it feels like everything's handled and they have plenty of stuff and they're really doing amazing, and they get a little bit sick and suddenly they're out of the game. Or something goes a little sideways with their food source and suddenly they're out of the game. And again, these are people who are incredibly good at this. And a lot of them don't make it 30 days or 40 days. And if those are modern people with modern technology at their fingertips and they're struggling that much inside of those situations, it really highlights just how tenuous life was back when our brains and bodies were evolving. And so we had to be geared to see anything that could potentially be a threat and anything that could potentially be a resource. Oh, it's beautifully said. I'm thinking of just the fact that roughly recent evidence within the last five years is that roughly 100,000 years ago, the entire human population on this planet, so our species, anatomically modern humans, have been around for around 300,000 years. It's a lot of time. Roughly 100,000 years ago, due to natural kinds of climate change, food sources dried up in Africa. Our human species, our ancestors, became restricted to a few little pockets, typically around the coast of South Africa, where the conditions were present where certain kind of particular tubers 
some strange plant that had like potato-ish roots, I guess, could live in that area. And there was access to shellfish and other forms of food from the sea. That was it. And the actual size of the human population in terms of adults was down to just several thousand people. Mm. We were this close, this close. I'm putting my fingers together. (laughs) You can't see, like there's just a grain of sand between them. We were this close to going extinct. So yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of attention to scarcity. If I could, I'll tell you a quick little story about a client of mine. I'll disguise some of the details. This was someone, a woman who was extremely successful, became really quite wealthy, and still in her 60s as a very established person with a loving family and marriage, as well as really pretty good physical health. The way she described her mind is that she essentially woke up every day and scanned what she called the three buckets, money, relationships, health, and double-checked that they were overflowing. Mm. And if there was anything less than overflowing in any one of them, like the stock market dipped a bit, so you know her net worth dropped by one half of 1% maybe, uh, <laughs> or if there was some little twitch in her marriage, she would get extremely anxious. That's why she was in my mm. office. She was very anxious about these kinds of things. And she described her background. She grew up with tremendous amount of scarcity. She grew up in a culture, in her kind of family system and the culture in which she grew up, that there was a lot of focus on external threat and things that could go wrong. And she, even though she was living better, her objective circumstances were better than 99.9% at least of the people walking today, let alone 99.99999% of the people who've ever walked the earth, still, she was really hijacked by and haunted by, inhabited by uh, an utterly irrational scarcity mindset. Mm. And then if I could just finish on this, it's really wild if you watch your own mind and you're becoming something of a meditator for us. So you too, <laughs> especially under your partner's influence. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. mine just bounced off you. You were like, <laughs> you were like Teflon <laughs> for dad's meditative influence in Velcro I, I for gaming. I think most kids are Teflon for their parents' <laughs> advice. But you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation. That's, right, that's a that's different right. episode. Finally, finally, the right messenger came to town and you caught the message. But anyway, watch your mind. People can do this listening. There you are. You're fine. It's okay. You're okay in the present, but you can watch your mind just kind of scanning for threat with associated subtle feelings of contraction and uneasiness and kind of getting ready to mobilize to flee, fight, or freeze for threat. Watch your mind. You're fed. You're watered. (laughs) You're okay. You know there's food in the cupboard. You know there's money in the bank. And still, and you're feeling good in the moment. You're grateful. You're content. You watch your mind scanning for something new to want. Mm, mm-hmm. Also, in terms of our third major need after safety and satisfaction connection, you're just sitting there, you're all cool, and you just watch your mind start to ruminate about your relationships in general. Do they still like me today? Do they love me today? Why didn't they praise me even more for that thing that I did? What's what's going on? You know, what's missing? What's wrong? Right? You're fine. And that's because deep in the emotional motivational engine of our brain in the subcortical regions, we are basically designed for drive, or as the translation from Buddhism 
commonly would put it, we're designed for craving. And craving is based on an underlying sense of, guess what? Scarcity. Something's missing. Something's wrong. And it's very difficult. You can just watch yourself to step out of the machinery of craving, even when objectively you're completely safe in the present. You have more than enough in the present. And a lot of good people like you and love you in the present. Even though that's true, that ancient machinery just keeps ticking around, grounded in a fundamental sense of scarcity. Absolutely. I think that's a great articulation of so many of the little ways that this mindset, this approach, broadly speaking, in terms of our, our brain or our body, can show up in our lives. Yeah. And a big way, and I named it in the very introduction that this has showed up for me in the past, has absolutely been inside of my relationships, where you have an interaction with somebody and it just starts to snowball in a kind of weird way because there is some underlying fear or concern that's operating a little bit underneath the surface. Yeah. And when I take a step back and I reflect on some of these interactions I've had with people, so often what I found at the very bottom in myself is this feeling of fear that had a connection to scarcity. I was anxious about something. Mm -hmm. There was some scarce resource. Maybe it was a person's attention. Maybe it was the amount of time spent around the house. Maybe it was my own feelings of self-worth, which were not sufficiently buttressed inside of myself and therefore were a scarce resource. Mm. Whatever it was, there was some fear of lack yeah. that underpinned the current concern inside of the interaction. And I think that's something that's been a very useful practice for me personally has been in those interpersonal moments, what can I do to relax around that contraction and try mm -hmm. to expand? And that's a little way that you can start to unwind some of this material related to scarcity inside of ourselves. Yeah, I'm really glad you talk about the social sphere. You know, we, did, we feel like we don't have enough narcissistic supplies as if there are a finite amount of yeah. them coming in. Yeah. And if, you know, they get praised, that means we won't. Mm -hmm. And if they're popular, that means we're going to be unpopular. I think of it, frankly, in the business world, including our business broadly, sort of in the self-help space. I'm just surprised by people who feel that somehow they're going to have less if other people are successful. Mm -hmm. As if there's a very small market that's really finite. And if somebody else gets more, they're going to get less. When in fact, actually, they're growing opportunities for everybody. One thing that people can do, I just want to kind of headline this, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves in our conversation, but one thing you can do again and again is when you do feel like there's enough, authentically, and if there's not enough, there's not enough. If you're drowning or being attacked or people have abandoned you really, or you're hungry, you're poor, there's not enough. But when there is enough, basically, slow down to take in the good of that experience. Slow it down. That you're basically all right right now in the present, or you're basically content. You, there's the basis for gratitude and contentment in the present, or you're connected enough. Yeah, it would be nice if more people liked you and more people rated your books with five stars on Amazon. All right, still, a lot of people have liked you. There's friendliness. You're connected to the wider world. Your own heart is warm and overflowing. Love is flowing out, whether it's even if it's not flowing in. When you have those opportunities, Feel them. And then you gradually can hardwire those experiences into your nervous system and gradually undo and defuel the machinery of craving. 
So increasingly, mm-hmm. as you rest in the present and pursue your goals, and take care of your needs and watch out for real threats and cope and survive, as you do that, you don't have to do that on the basis of lack of scarcity. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. participate in life on the basis of that felt sense of abundance in the present, in your own experience. And I want to take a moment to highlight that that's an incredibly powerful practice. And it's also a difficult one to do because our biology is pushing against us in all the different ways that we named. And also a lot of our societal structures are pushing against us in a wide variety of ways. Something that I mentioned to you before we started recording that Basically, it in my view, if you turned the scarcity mindset into an economic philosophy, you'd basically create capitalism. Yeah, like we're we're oh, yeah. right there uh, in terms of something that is just designed to create a feeling of scarcity inside of all of us. Because when people enter into competition with each other, scarcity is almost always the inevitable psychological result. Because you truly are fighting over something. There are only so many seats at the table, or executive positions, or, or companies that can be successful on a, on, in a given field or whatever. And you can actually see how this infiltrates our culture. One of the ways you can see this is in the way that we talk about sports and politics. Hmm. I follow a lot of various sports franchises and I pay a lot of attention to politics. Go the San Francisco 49ers. They're in the tournament. There you go. Booyah. All of the local Bay Area sports teams. <laughs> they may be out of the tournament by the time <laughs> you hear this episode. They probably will be, but okay, that's a, that's a different podcast. But anyways, <laughs> we spend so much time in both of these disciplines, sports and politics, talking about who might win next and so little time talking about who just won. Yeah. Like if you just divide the share of minutes spent talking about who's going to win the next title versus celebrating the one that was just won, like it's got to be radically slanted toward the future. And I get why that is. There are a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, The winner is yesterday's news to an extent. But that inevitably leads to this experience of like, oh, I got there, but now what? Did it actually feel good? Do I actually get to feel like I won something? Do we actually see the progress that we are making? Yeah. Or are we trapped in this kind of constant washing machine of always something else, always something else, and the goalposts keep on getting pushed down the field? Right. And as you well know, we can pursue the next something else while also feeling yeah. a fullness and yep. a balance inside ourselves. And indeed, doing that helps us pursue the next something else. It's very motivating Absolutely. to do that. Yeah. I know, it's kind of wild. You see people over the long course of a top career, they usually come from an abundance mindset. Hmm. There's a sense of there's enough credit for everybody. There's a kind of, they're happy warriors, as it were. You know, they're joyful as they keep working hard and take care of things. Yeah, absolutely. And they're not paying the cost what's called in science, allostatic load of the consequences of the stress. See, scarcity is stressful. Mm -hmm. Abundance is healing and nurturing and resilience promoting, right? So people who operate from a scarcity mindset, stay thirsty, my friends, stay hungry, my friends. (laughs) Uh, You know, you got to always be thinking about what's your next score, your next goal, blah, blah. They're paying a price along the way that's going to gradually degrade their own performance. Yeah. You know, bit by bit, grain of sand by grain of sand. Yeah. 
Yeah, just adding something to that, scarcity can actually be kind of addictive to our brains. Hmm. What I mean by that is that there's a lot of research that shows that people who get stressed get sensitized to future stressful experiences. Mm -hmm. And there are things like the amygdala hijack, where basically your amygdala operates, that's sort of the fear center of the brain. Yeah. It operates more quickly than the more rational top-down structures. Mm -hmm. So it's kicking into gear before those other brain processes yeah. have an opportunity to catch up and be like, whoa, 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 you don't actually have to be that worried about this situation. Yeah. So you add those things together, the brain gets more and more sensitized to stress, and the amygdala fires faster than the rest of the brain. And it's like, well, you've got a recipe here for wandering towards those scarcity experiences. That's really true. One point quickly about societal pressures. Obviously, if you want to run a modern economy grounded on consumerism, you need to make people feel like they need more. Yeah. Continually. Right. Further, if you, it's a great strategy in capitalism to keep your workers relatively impoverished, keep their minimum wage really low, don't give them health insurance, and make them desperate. Because if they're desperate, they are more willing to put up with the work conditions or take the low wages that enable the few to become rich at the expense of the many. So these are some of the ways in which, yeah, scarcity can be kind of baked into our our societal systems. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. 
Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. So we've sort of talked very glowingly about an abundance mindset, and we've really described the problems with a scarcity mindset to this point. And that makes me start to wander towards thinking that I've been doing about abundance and scarcity and my own kind of struggles with these different things. Mm. To be self-disclosing for a second, I am the kind of person where if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I would have just you know, gotten nauseous at the phrase, cultivate an abundance mindset. Oh, I'd just be like, oh, oh, poor baby. Ugh. You know, the whole thing, because it is, it was so tied to a certain kind yeah. of self-help personality yeah. that just really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. And I had a lot of concerns associated with the promotion of, call it what you will, an abundance mindset, uh, manifesting, the prosperity gospel. Like you could really go down the rabbit hole here yeah. in a way where you're leaning into some viewpoints that I think at the very least have got some problems associated with them. And so I want to give a couple of caveats here about how I think about abundance versus scarcity and, and cultivating an abundance mindset, to use that phrase. It's really, really easy to turn the abundance mindset into either a cure-all or a straw man. And I think that I was a little guilty of turning it into a bit of a straw man in the past. Mm. On the one hand, there are people who say things like, just manifest this thing through your strong abundance mindset and align with the higher vibrational frequency and everything will kind of just work out for you. It's a form of basically magical thinking. We're purple. Yeah, absolutely. Then on the other hand, you've got me circa a couple of years ago where I probably would have said something like, how could you possibly talk about having an abundance mindset? The system is rigged and unfair, like we were talking about. And, you know, maybe somebody's a single parent providing for their kids. There are all of these authentic limitations. Resources really are scarce. And abundance just sounds like this kind of hyper privileged thing reserved for millionaires or people who have a self help book to sell you. Yep. And between the two of them, I got to say, I'm definitely more sympathetic toward the second viewpoint than I am toward the first. And that's kind of where I'm coming from here. For me, a authentic, useful, abundance mindset, in quotations, is grounded in reality. Mm. It is not smelling the flowers while the world burns. It is not lying to yourself about the truths of your life or the truths of life more broadly. And it's not pretending that the glass is full when it's actually empty. It's a tool. It's a psychological tool that we use that allows us to get to a place where we feel calmer and more collected and, and more whole, where we are pushing back on those baked-in issues inside of our biology that incline us toward scarcity. We're putting a finger on the scale, not because we're trying to 
tilt the slider all the way to the positive in an irrational way, but because we're fighting a inner tendency that is itself unfair. So we are creating more fairness by building in this inclination. To give kind of an example here, tools can be used toward good ends and toward problematic ones, right? Like we should all be washing our hands these days, particularly because, hello, we're in a pandemic. But if you wash your hands nine or 10 times in a row every time that you enter and leave the house because you have a pathological fear of contamination, you might have OCD. That can be really problematic for some people. So just because a tool is useful, like the abundance mindset, that doesn't mean that it's appropriate all the time. And it does mean that people can take it to extreme lengths that are a bit inappropriate. So that was a little bit of a monologue for me there, Dad. So I'm wondering if you've got any commentary on this whole thing. I think what you're saying is genius. I just think, oh, well, thanks. honestly, <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. It's nuanced. It's right. And let me ask you, so Forrest, what do you mean? What would constitute an abundance mindset? Well, for me, I think that the way that it really shows up is relaxation around short-term craving mm -hmm. and the attempt to see more fully medium-term and long-term opportunities. Mm. Uh, you have a practice that you've talked about in the podcast on the past. You call it all right right now. Yeah. And it's essentially an attempt to fight against the body's tendency to go danger, 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 when danger is actually really pretty minimal. Right. As we said before, of course, if you actually are in a burning building, it is very appropriate for your amygdala to freak out and to get you out of that house as rapidly as possible. Yeah. But most of the time, that's not actually where we're at. But the brain likes to react to threats that are a two at the level of a seven or an eight mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And so there's little practices where you settle the ground. You go, hey, I'm still breathing right now. Yeah, My body's still safe right now. My heart's still beating right now. And you can do that in a little interaction with somebody else, like a, a little challenging one even. You can take a second and go, okay, Maybe even while you're saying something, in the back of your mind, this can be rolling through. Hmm. We're okay right now. We're arguing about this thing, but it's all right. We're going to find a good landing. It's going to be okay. Like little things like that. And then from there, you can try to see possibility a little bit more. Hmm. And I think that abundance is a huge part of that. Really tuning into your own strengths, seeing the resources that you truly have, even if material resources are limited. Maybe you've developed a lot of internal resources that are really powerful, that are really useful. And then you can look out into the world from that stance of saying, okay, my body's okay right now, I'm safe. Mm. And I have all of these resources inside of myself that are truly there to give. And I think that people, a lot of the time, they don't feel like they have a lot of those internal resources and they don't feel like their bodies are truly safe. And so for me, abundance is really about pushing back on those two things and then allowing things to flow naturally from there. All of a sudden, your behavior starts to change. You see new opportunities out in the world. And I think that when people talk about like raising their vibrational frequency and mm -hmm. you know manifesting the life that they want to live, that's really what they're talking about. They're talking about being confident inside of themselves in a real, mm. authentic way. And from that confidence, seeing the world around them more clearly. That was kind of a long answer, but it's kind of how I think about it. No, it's great. And mm. to reverse our usual roles, I'd like to highlight <laughs> and summarize. Some of yeah, the great. Points. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first one 
was like what I was talking about too, which is to develop, I'll call it a mood of abundance, where we could say a mm. green zone brain in which there's an underlying feeling in the body that's genuine to you of enoughness. So there's a kind of, there's a calming, you're, you're rested in, but you know, a broad, subtle background feeling of peacefulness, contentment, and love broadly as your ground of being, that mood. It's not cognitive. It's not a mindset. It's sort of a mood. So underline that. And then you said two things that really struck me, Forrest, about the mindset mm. that I want to flag. One aspect of the mindset is a recognition of opportunities around you. Yeah. Okay, great. The other thing you said that was really important to flag is to recognize an abundance of strengths and skills mm. mm -hmm. and know-how and resources inside yourself. We got some classic positive psych going on here. I like it. Well, yeah, yeah character strengths, <laughs> you got it. You know, you got the tools, you, you know you're a stubborn, gritty, moxie, saturated kind of person. You're going to hang in there. Mm -hmm. You recognize that you do know how to present in a business meeting. If Even if it makes you nervous, you do know how to speak, you know, in a reasonably organized kind of way. You do know how to write an email. You know, you know you have these capabilities. And I think what you're talking about in part with an abundance mindset in these two aspects is not underestimating opportunities or overestimating threats in the world around you and also not underestimating your own capabilities. Mm -hmm. So I really mm -hmm. want to highlight those things, especially the last one, because I think for a lot of people, that's the one where they're, the gap is greatest mm. between the view and reality. Uh, a lot of people are fairly clear about opportunities and threats around them, but they're really, really negative and pessimistic and short-sighted about their own wonderful capabilities. Because that's what you really draw on. Even if the world is kind of rocky and bumpy, if inside yourself, you have a lot of capabilities and you have confidence, you use that word, confidence in yourself about them, well, you can still keep going forward because you'll manage those difficulties in the world. Mm, I really like that. And this reminds me of something that I heard it from Katie Milkman when we were talking with her about mm. how to change. She wrote a yeah. great book dedicated to that topic. They put people in an experimental condition into these two settings. One setting where they were being given a lot of advice from somebody else. Essentially, they were asked, hey, what's a problem in your life? And okay, they had people pair up and the other person kind of gave them advice. And then the other experimental condition, what they did is they essentially asked the person to give themselves advice. Hmm. And what they found was that for starters, when people were asked to really give themselves advice, they put themselves in the position of being the knower. They actually give, gave themselves really great advice. They were like very <laughs> happy with the advice that they received. Uh -huh. And also they felt better about it. Yeah. They felt more agent. They felt more capable. They felt like they could actually make a difference in their lives. So both in terms of how they evaluated the quality of the advice and their likelihood of actually implementing based on the advice went up radically. But I think that we do this to ourselves all the time, right? Like, we're in a situation that feels insurmountable. And there's something about that feeling that bores into our bones and prevents us from seeing it clearly. Yeah. And sometimes what we can do is we can take a step back, we can calm ourselves down, and we can try to look at the situation a little bit more holistically and go, okay, what are all the things that I got? Great. Let's evaluate all of those things. Now, if I had to be the only person I could turn to mm. to solve this problem, 
how would I solve it? Mm. What would I do if I had to do something? And a lot of the time, people give themselves really, really good advice. But there's something about that initial feeling of call it what you will. Scarcity, incompetence, fear, don't know mind uh, in a problematic sense that really prevents people from taking positive actions in their life a lot of the time. Yeah, they underestimate the riches inside themselves. There are a lot of traditional stories around the world of people who are searching for jewels and so forth. And then they finally discovered that actually they were under the rug, as it were, you know, or at the bottom of the pond the whole time. Okay, so I have two questions for him. So first question is, will an abundance mindset make people complacent and lazy? That's one of the fears and critiques. Okay, yeah. Do you want to do both the questions or do you want me to respond to that one? No, I want to let's give you, let's you whirl on that one. Yeah. In short, most of the time, no. There are absolutely people who can get to a state of complacency around most anything. And sure, you know, having an excessive abundance mindset might be something that triggers somebody into that. But more often than not, what's really shown in the research is that both rewards and punishments are motivating, but they're motivating in different ways. Punishments are very motivating in the short term, but over the long term, they really wear people down and they become less motivating over time. Whereas rewards tend to have more sustained motivation toward an end that's associated with them. So if we think about this in terms of an abundance mindset, a lot of the time you're tuning into the experience of a reward, right? Mm. You're feeling something good inside of the body. You're enjoying an experience a little bit more. You're moving away from painful stimuli of various kinds. And that tends to fill the coffers of a person's internal ecosystem in a way that allows them to gain more out in the world. And also, I just got to really highlight this here. If you're worried about your brain not craving enough, I would not worry about that. <laughs> that is, I, I would not spend the mental effort being like, wow, maybe I'll just get to a point where I'm so abundance mindseted that I just become lazy and complacent because my brain doesn't want anything else. I can almost guarantee you that your brain will always want something else. <laughs> 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 so much about it. You know, like a, like a shark has to keep swimming to have oxygen flowing through. I know, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think just about this question, I think about Maslow's hierarchy and yeah. good research that uh, in terms of his hierarchy, the lower needs for raw survival and, you know, basic social standing in, a, in the group and a couple of other things, when those needs are satisfied, they're called D needs, which stands for deficiency needs. Something is missing. There is a lack. When that lack is addressed and fulfilled, then whoosh, people naturally move into self-actualization. They get interested. They really want to manifest their capabilities. They want to you know, run with the big dogs because they feel capable of doing that. And that's a natural evolution. I've definitely seen that you know, in people. I've seen it in you. I've seen it in myself that, yeah, we're kind of gobsmacked with gratitude. And you know, you sort of look around and go, okay, what next cool thing could we do? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, here's the next question. Okay. Imagine a person who truly is in a marginal tough situation. There's a lot of objective scarcity in their life. Maybe there's a scarcity of social status, uh, perhaps because they are being structurally discriminated against, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there there's a real scarcity of time. They've Maybe they're a single parent with young children, you know, a not great job. 
it's tough. They're, you know, they're not starving to death, but oof, there's not much object of abundance in their world. What would be relevant for a person like that with regard to a quote unquote abundance mindset? I love this question. Couple of key points. First key point, there's a difference between having a abundance mindset and being self-deceptive. A lot of people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that an abundance mindset is the same thing as just being really positive and optimistic. And I actually think that they're quite different things. Mm, that's a great distinction. Yeah. And, and to sort of reiterate what we were saying earlier, if you are actually in a dangerous situation, it is absolutely appropriate to freak out. And this gets to the second key point. When we clear away the imaginary threats, the real ones become very, very clear to us. Mm. And I think that that is such a sneaky value of what we call abundance mindset. Yeah. Which for me, a lot of the time is really just seeing clearly. Mm. And when you see more clearly, you develop more self-confidence and more mm. trust in yourself, including the confidence to say, wow, this is really bad and I need to get out of here right now. Mm. Or from a material scarcity standpoint, wow, we really do need to have a super tight budget this month for whatever reason. Yeah. Or I need to find a new relationship as quickly as possible because this one has become unsafe. You start to trust yourself more. It becomes mm -hmm. harder to gaslight you in a variety of different ways. And a lot of the time when somebody is in a situation that is truly materially scarce, where they find abundance is through other verticals, the resources we have inside of ourselves and abundance in our view of the outside world as having potential opportunities for us, mm. even if we are more limited in some ways than other people, perhaps by society's perception of us or other very unfair yeah. uh, forms of discrimination that exist out in the world. Even a kind of abundance in just like the moment-to-moment -moment experience of going on living can be a very, very powerful resource for people from time mm. to time, particularly if they are in very high threat situations. So yeah, I, I think I would mostly return to that idea around threat perception, where it's very easy for the mind to imagine threats. Mm. And if you know, like me, I've referred to myself in the past as an anxious person, and I'm mm. kind of working on that a little bit in terms of my self-concept. So I'm not really referring to myself so much that way these days. But that was a way I used to think about myself. Hmm. And there was a part of me, even though I tend to really trust my brain, that sometimes wasn't sure if I should be as anxious as I was. Yeah. Because I had to apply a kind of internal correction factor around whether or not I could trust my anxiety because I had had experiences in the past where I understood that I had been needlessly anxious at the time. Yeah. But the more that I've moved toward that stance of, opening, relaxing, softening, getting a little bit more lightly holding around my anxiety, the more that I've actually been able to trust its impulses in a really full way, the more I've been able to trust myself. And I think that that's just like such a powerful resource for so many people. I love what you've said. And mm. I um, got to reflect myself on what you were talking about. And I would nominate maybe three things too, along with what you said, which is, even for people in objectively scarce situations, there really is a scarcity of money, time, energy, social support, external forms of credential. 
job opportunities, all of the above, still there is an abundance first of awareness. The field of awareness. Now, I know this is very on brand for me, so I try not to fall asleep here. But anyway, there is an abundance of, aware, of awareness. Awareness is capacious. It can hold so many things. It's boundless. It lacks bounds. It lacks edges. And people, even in difficult situations, can keep practicing an opening of awareness to take in the whole field rather than closing it down, as the brain is prone to do, with tunnel vision around those lights on the inner dashboard that are flashing red. So first, an abundance of awareness. Second, even in really scarce circumstances, there's an abundance of heart. You have an abundance of heart. You have the capacity to love at will, to find compassion and kindness for others, to make connections with others in heartfelt ways as you best can. There's an abundance there. It's, you know, you're not restricted. You're not constricted inherently in an abundance of heart. And the third form of abundance that strikes me is the future, time, possibility moving into the future. And one way to recognize that is to appreciate what would accumulate if you could spend five minutes a day on it, mm. day after day, 300, let's say days a year, that would accumulate 300 times five is 1500 minutes. That's a lot of minutes actually yeah. to, to truly build something or develop yourself in some way. And that's a field of opportunity. That's a field of opportunity, the abundance of the future extending in front of you, which gives you time to build more and more resources that will give you more and more object of abundance. So we're already starting to kind of transition a little bit here, and we've really woven this in throughout the conversation, ways to authentically cultivate an abundance mindset. For me, they fall into two different categories. The first is limiting or lowering scarcity experiences. Mm -hmm. So kind of tamping down the problematic stuff. And then on the other side of it, kind of pushing up the helpful stuff. Are there things that you have seen, maybe particularly when working with people, Dad, because obviously you have a long history as a clinician, you've worked with a lot of people who have been very anxious. And I think about anxiety experiences as often being very closely tied to feelings of scarcity, like in the example of the woman that you were naming earlier. Are there things that people can do practically to try to lower the volume on those scarcity experiences? One thing I, I see right off the top is that people are afraid of not being afraid. Mm. So it's very important to remind yourself and to believe it, to have conviction about it, that you can rest in a mood of abundance and you can also rest in a mindset of abundance along the ways that we've described while still keeping your eyes open for threats and not losing your edge and continuing to have a work ethic and to work hard and to keep pursuing your good goals. Right there. A lot of times I've seen people who kind of, they kind of collude with their own self-doubt. Mm. They ally with their inner traitors in some sense. And it's really helpful to appreciate that you don't have to do that. That in fact, you really can get on your own side every day to develop more of an abundance mindset while still watching out for danger and being strong in the service of your own goals. Totally have seen that. And partly I saw it because, you know, I would try to be helpful and a person would say, yeah, doc, yeah, doc, that's true, that's true, that's true. But they didn't buy it because deep down inside, they were afraid that if they did buy it, they would lower their guard and whack. That's when they would get nailed. Mm. Second, think about, we haven't talked about this part. Who do you hang out with? Yeah. You know, 
Do you hang out with people who maybe for their reasons, who knows what they are, but they're just doomsayers, naysayers. I have a neighbor who had a remarkably fortunate and happy and developed life. And, but to hear him talk about it, everything is crap and tomorrow is going to be worse. What? You know, yeah. <laughs> get away from those kind of people. It doesn't mm. mean you want to be with people who are ridiculous. And there's this classic novel by Voltaire, Candide, in which one of the main characters, Penn Gloss, the philosopher, is always talking about, oh, this is the best of all possible worlds. Well, no, a lot of things could be better, whether it's regarding the climate crisis or dealing with the COVID you know, epidemic or anything else, really. Things really could be better. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about being with people who are not needlessly doomsaying or raining on your parade and who actually have realistic optimism. And I think of it as kind of possibility thinking. I get teased sometimes to my family when we go out to eat, you know, I'm, I'm a possibility thinker. Hey, how cool could it be? You know, well, you can write a book, uh, you know, why not? You can create a program. Everyone is just a a couple minutes away from writing a book, becoming a psychologist or, you know, who knows something else. You got to do the work, but if you don't have a sense of the possibility, you know, you'll never get going, right? Yeah. Uh, You know, aim for the, aim for a tree, you're going to hit a rock. Aim for the stars, you might hit a tree. Pretty good. (laughs) Okay, so that's the other thing I've seen. A little softer landing than the rocks. Okay, I like that, Dad. That's true. To give a few other ways that people might work with that scarcity feeling inside. For me, so much of this is somatic. Mm. And we've named it a couple of times throughout the conversation. But just to really highlight it here, there are very distinct body sensations that are associated with relaxation and satiety, if you want to think about it that way, like I've had enough, Mm. calm, expansion, choose the words of your choice. These have a huge body-based component and I can really feel in my body when I'm there versus when I am contracted and tight Mm. and anxious and all of those other words. But the trick is noticing it in the moment. Yeah, When we take the brain out of it just a little tiny bit, and we see the situation from 10 feet above ourselves, it's generally pretty easy for us to tell which of these modes we're in at a given moment. The the challenge comes in identifying actively in the moment that you need to go through that process of self-evaluation. And so it becomes a practice, right? And over time, we shorten the distance between getting into contraction and noticing that we're in contraction and maybe we should consider doing something about it. That's great. I'm going to be playing with that as I kind of move through the day. I mean, even right now, as you think about it, I'm doing it here a little bit. Yeah. Do you sit with a sense of fullness, right? Or do you Mm. sit with a sense of contraction around possessing what you have and making sure nobody reaches over and grabs it from you? Can we live in a way that has more of that open gesture? One thing that I also want to underline, I know we're going to approach an end here, is the abundance of giving other people their due, giving them their moment in the Mm. spotlight. You know, there's been some attention appropriately recently for ways in which more advantaged people like you and me can step a little more to the sideline to make room in the foreground of attention for people who've been structurally pushed to the sidelines throughout our history. You know, can you let the other person prevail with their point? Is there a scarcity of rightness? Man, that's a huge one, honestly. I I just want to highlight that because I had never really Mm -hmm. thought about that. 
in this framework. And I think that that's such a huge one. I, I've had many moments in my past that I've been actively working on where I just sort of realized that I was never letting anyone else get the last word. And you know that's a challenge for a verbose person in general. And I'm definitely in that category. But I, I was just noticing that it was becoming problematic. And I think that it was making me more challenging to interact with in a variety of different ways. And sometimes you see that in other people, right? They can just never let somebody else be the last person to talk. Yeah. Can you let them have their moment to shine? Yeah. Rather than ruining their good moment. You know, sometimes it happens that siblings, right? The younger one kind of wrecks the moment that the older one maybe is having right there. And sure, maybe the parents discipline the younger one or make some arrangement or response. But meanwhile, guess what? Collateral damage. That sweet moment was ended, ruined for the older kid. Mm. That happened for you sometimes <laughs> for us when you were young. Oh, yeah. I mean, my sister and I were both fantastic when we were about like 12 and nine years old at ruining the moment for the other person <laughs> in a variety of ways. And I was certainly not uh, not entirely innocent of that one. Yeah. But yeah, so talking about maybe uh, one or two other ways, and then we'll move on to ways to increase abundance experiences mm. to lower the feeling of scarcity. Big one, I'm just going to go through it really quickly. Avoid comparison if possible. Mm. All the different ways that comparison appears inside of our lives. Again, speaking personally, for me, that's such a immediate mover into a scarcity holding of the world of resources and frankly of myself. If I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm seeing somebody else who runs a self-helpy podcast or whatever and they've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers and I look at their thing and I go, "Oh, what are they doing that I'm not?" like all of that kind of stuff just immediately gets us into a place that's so much more difficult to be happy from. Then to balance what you said for us with increasing abundance experiences, we've already, of course, talked about a lot of things that people can do. I want to add a couple of things that are really important here. First, generosity. Mm. The mudra, that's a term from a gesture of your hand in yoga, a mudra of generosity. You know, a kind of a including what could be called a certain generosity of what you see in other people, sort of a blessing orientation, a kind of positive valuing, seeing the good in others as a very simple expression of generosity, in addition to other more concrete and practical forms of generosity, you know, as best you can, as best you're able. So generosity, and generosity is both an expression of abundance and a teaching of abundance. It teaches us along the way that there is abundance. And interestingly, very often, when we participate in the giving of generosity, the world starts giving back, sometimes in interesting and mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. We start participating in a big circle, a kind of circle of Donna, circle of generosity, circle of potluck, to draw upon that phrase. So that's one thing we can do. The other thing that I want to really emphasize here, and I know you agree, is take action. Yeah. Right? Totally. If you see an abundance of opportunities, but you don't take action to pursue them, what was the value of that mindset? And in fact, mm -hmm. over time, mm -hmm. opportunities kind of sort of might dry up if we don't yeah. do what we can to fulfill them. Other people take a look at us. They see us not pursuing certain opportunities. They've maybe presented to us and with some sadness or not. They shrug and move on to other people yeah. who are more 
focused. They have, they're more proactive. They're more resourceful in pursuing opportunities. Take action. Also, if part of your abundance mindset is to see capacities inside yourself, there too. If you don't take action based on those capacities, you don't get the feedback that, yeah, I really do have these capacities. And you, in fact, don't have opportunities to even develop them further. So you've got even more abundance inside yourself. Take action. You know, there's just no replacement for sustained action over time. Yeah, absolutely. And a little way that that can show up for people is that doing things out in the world gives us opportunities to experience little wins. Mm. Taking into action in a variety right of on. different ways. Yeah, it gives us an opportunity to have many little experiences of things changing in small ways. Even if it's just, I went to the grocery store today or I worked out for 20 minutes today or... I established a healthy boundary with somebody that I had been kind of struggling to do that with in a small way today. Mm. Well, okay, if you put one brick in the wall, the second brick is a lot easier to place. The the hardest chapter of a book to write is the first one. And from there, it can often kind of flow a little bit more naturally. So as we kind of come to the end here, Dad, do you have any more reflections or thoughts about this topic as a whole that you would like to offer? Well, this is where I tend to go off the deep end and you're tolerant of it, which I appreciate. I mean, we we are, we have orbited around a lot of your core Buddhist philosophy stuff here, Dad. So I am kind of teeing you up if you want to go in that direction. Uh, for many, many people, me included, there are two important kinds of abundance or sources of abundance we haven't named yet. The first is the stunning, extraordinary overflowing abundance of reality itself right? Yeah. Here we have the Big Bang universe bubbles into being nearly 14 billion years ago, expanding now. So much stuff in it where scientists estimate about 2 trillion galaxies on average, kind of like- good. Yeah. Kind of like our own with 100 billion stars. Current estimates are that there are millions, if not hundreds of millions of rocky earth-like planets in our own galaxy on which liquid water can be maintained. Wow, everything. And then just kind of bringing it down to earth, you know, just the ordinary-ness of the sun is shining. Uh, We are breathing stardust, oxygen in, oxygen out. Other people, the gifts of life, we're sitting here three and a half billion years into evolution of life on our planet. Wow, wow, just Wow. You know what I mean? If it's not a big wow, your (laughs) eyes are not open. You're not really seeing what's happening. Yeah. So that's a major source of abundance. To add a little thing onto the end of that, if it's helpful for you to interact with that at a slightly smaller scale than the size of the universe and so on, the beauty of nature is a great way to do it. To see the beauty of a sunrise, a sunset, to go look out your window if you're in a, if you live in a place where this is available to you. Um, If you don't, to if you can, to drive a few minutes outside of where you live and just have Mm -hmm. an opportunity to be in slightly more natural environments, even a city park or something, you can look around and go, wow, there's so much life here. Yeah. Exactly. Just, wow. Okay. And then for some people, certainly there's an underlying sense of a kind of mysterious ground of everything that is open and fertile and kind of a field of endless possibilities, perhaps if you're inclined with some infusion mysteriously of even awareness and love. And there's a sense of, wow, that as 
There's no scarcity there. Yeah. That is inexhaustible, an inexhaustible mm. wellspring of possibility at the heart of reality altogether. Well, that's really lovely, Dad. And I think that it is a wonderful reflection to close this episode on, which I think is actually one of my favorite episodes that we've done. I really loved this one. I think that it's such a big and important topic. I hope if you're listening that you got something of value out of it. And today I had a great time talking with my dad about abundance and scarcity. We began today's episode by explaining what we meant by the phrases scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. It's really common to run into these phrases out in the world and not to have a great sense of what people actually mean when they use them. Most of the time, scarcity is characterized by a sense of lack, by a feeling of contraction in the body, and by the general perception that there isn't enough to sustain you out in the world. When we operate from a place of scarcity, we're sensitized to the threats of the world around us. We see almost everything as a threat, because when you don't have a lot, everything kind of becomes a threat. We see the cloud in every silver lining, and we assume that things are going to go wrong. On the other hand, abundance is characterized by a sense of enoughness. There's this fullness and balance inside, and maybe even the bodily sensation of expansion rather than contraction. When we operate from abundance, we're relaxed. We see things as opportunities. We see the silver lining on the cloud. And this also allows us often to see situations more clearly because a lot of our biology and psychology is set up to excessively perceive scarcity. There were a lot of survival benefits millions of years ago for our ancient ancestors who viewed resources as highly scarce because, hello, they were. Scarcity in the wild led to death. And the truth is that a scarcity mindset is really, really good for keeping people alive. But it's not so great for helping people live really fulfilled lives. This means that we don't cultivate an abundance mindset to lie about what's true out in the world. We do it to place a hand on an already unbalanced scale, aligning that scale more accurately with the way the world around us actually is. We then spent a little while talking about sources of scarcity in our bodies, our minds, and out in our culture as a whole. And there are many of them. The body is tuned to be extremely sensitive toward any even vague perception of not enoughness because, again, of the incredibly high survival costs of not enoughness. And this permeates so many different things. It permeates our material lives, of course, but also our relationships, the various ways in which we are acutely aware that we're not quite getting what we want from other people. Then socially, so much of our culture is built on cultivating feelings of scarcity inside of people. It's built on making people feel like they don't have enough and so they need to buy something new and shiny. And it's really easy for that to make people feel like resources are scarce broadly, not only out in the world, but inside themselves as well. I then spent a little time sharing about how I think about an abundance mindset and some of the natural critiques and caveats that arise when we talk about this territory. And what I wanted to highlight again and again is that a true abundance mindset is grounded in reality and aids us in perceiving reality more accurately. 
Something we've talked about plenty on the podcast in the past is gaslighting, the ways in which other people can cause us to question our perception of reality. And one of the powers of moving toward more of an abundance mindset is when you see the world more clearly, when you start clearing away all of the imagined threats, the real ones become very obvious to you. Throughout the conversation, we wove in a variety of ways that somebody can push back on a scarcity mindset and cultivate an abundance mindset. And we summarized a number of those ways toward the end of the conversation. Some of the real highlights for me include the physical sensations of scarcity and abundance and shortening the amount of time it takes you to realize that you have moved toward a scarcity posture in the body and to then go, huh, maybe I should try to relax a little bit. Maybe I should try to expand a little bit. And over time with practice, that amount of time gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Another great tool is to slow down. The fear and threat systems of the body tend to move a lot more rapidly than our more rational ones. So just giving ourselves a little bit of time can really help us move away from scarcity. Then we can increase our perception of the real abundance that exists out in the world and critically inside ourselves. When material resources are scarce, it becomes actually more important for us to be strongly grounded in our own resources as individuals. What are the ways in which you are truly capable? What do you have to give to other people and to the world? What are the skills that you have cultivated over time? Alongside that, a growth mindset is a really powerful tool. Even if you don't know something today, you can learn it tomorrow. And then it's another resource that you have inside of you as time goes on. Rick then closed with what I thought was a really lovely reflection about connecting with the broader abundance that we can find in our worlds. The abundance of nature, the abundance of the remarkable strangeness of the material universe, and maybe even the abundance of something else, something that is a kind of ground or a, a spiritual presence, whatever it is that you can connect to that matters to you and how you can find no scarcity there. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and haven't already, We'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, as a reminder, we're on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, maybe even a cup of coffee a month if you live in the Bay Area like I do, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening.